In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Please be seated. We're looking again the second part of how we are to be stewards on this earth. God has given us the privilege of not only caring for these blessings this earth provides, but for the minds and the wisdom to reveal the treasures hidden within them. But the backbone of everything we do, it has to go back that God is the creator. If that is not settled in our minds, how can we understand that this earth and everything in it is his? He understands how it works. He understands the best plan for it. That is why the wicked promote evolution so strongly. It takes the ownership away from God. God does own it. It must be settled in our mind. He has given it to us for the period of time that we walk this earth to be stewards of it. Not that we own it. It's like we're renters while we live here. It's his property. And he gets to give us the directions on how we are to care for it. Now Psalm 24.1 confirms this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The psalmist here is just proclaiming what God has already said. He owns it all. I 
Again, we are the stewards of the earth. His people. His royal priesthood. And we are given the mandate to be stewards of the earth. We are commanded to take care of it. To discover the treasures in it. And that is for each generation of believers. So our task, our duty, is to discover whatever we can on this great planet that God has put us for the benefits of mankind. And we should leave the earth a better place, a more advanced place, than when we came into this earth. This is our home, and it will be our home. It will be renewed, and we should love it, and we should care for it. We will be looking a little bit at the agricultural realm, our responsibilities there. And I'm going to say again what I said last time, there is always a trade-off. I'll get into it a little more in the sermon. Things are not perfect here on earth anymore. We are sinful beings, and the earth even groans. There will always be a trade-off. You want to build a, have a cornfield, you may have to destroy a woods. But to feed people, you need more food, you do the cornfield. There's a trade-off. We'll start with Exodus 23.10. God tells the Israelites, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat of what they leave the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. These are instructions for the Israelites, but they're deeper. They go, I think, more universal. They're for God's people. And there are a lot of truths in here. The first thing we see is uh, short-term productivity or semi-productivity of the land is healthy for the long-term sustainability of the land. Even the land has to be revitalized. It has to have its rest. Here the Israelites are reminded, they're commanded to leave the land every seven years. To rest. 
But notice it's not completely unproductive. There will be residual crops. There will be grazing land. There'll be land pastures for the beast, for the wild beast. So in a sense, this is a type of like crop rotation, leaving the land fallow. And from what I read, this revitalizes the microbes in the soil, makes for a healthier soil for plants to grow, and allowing the beast to walk among the field and graze. They're aerating the soil with their hooves and fertilizing it with their waste. It's healthy for the land. It's good for the long-term productivity of the land. And yeah, for a season you may have to forego a crop on that land. But God is looking at the big picture that this earth is to sustain, to sustain generation after generation, so the land must be protected. But there's more in these verses. It tells us, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. God is always aware of those who live on the margins of life. The poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, and I mean legitimate poor. We have a system that's been completely corrupted, but the legitimate poor. God always has a heart for them, and we must as a people. And in here, he's saying, you know, you leave it so the poor and the strangers, the sojourners can go in and take what they want of the land. They can go in and glean it. They can have their livelihood. Now, there's been some discussion that were they to allow all their land on the seventh year, or was it part? Or all the farms, or, all, or just every other farm? And I, I agree with the scholars who think that they partial it out because otherwise the poor would have to wait every seven years to have some stuff to eat. But let's say if they do one seventh of their farm and leave it for the poor, the sojourners. But the big picture is the care of the poor is a requirement. It's a requirement. And that must be considered today in our production of food, and I would say in all that we produce. Maximum profit in all that we do is not pleasing to God if the poor suffer. I'm not saying we shouldn't make a profit, businessmen, farmers, and that, but maximum profit in everything you do cannot be 
the ideal standard for us. It must be tempered with considering how will this affect other people, particularly those in need. Deuteronomy 24 tells us, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, <clears throat> you shall not strip them afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the father, and the widow. You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Three times it repeats it. The olives and the grain, most likely barley, that was what they produced mostly. And the grapes, the wine. You know, these are all cash crops. These were the selling commodities of these farms. Let's look at the barley. Again, this would be the staple for bread and livestock feed. Plus, you could sell it. Maximum profit would mean you want to get every sheath, every grain, everything you can out of the field. But God commands them to leave some. Leave some for the poor for the traveler, that they can glean it. That they can come in and have their sustenance. You know, we saw that in the book of Ruth. We saw the heart of Boaz where he told the workers, leave a little more grain, lay in the field. But notice, even the poor, they were required to work, to put in effort for their food. And Ruth surely did. What about the olive oil, another cash crop? When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you beat your olive trees, it doesn't mean you're mad at it. You take a long pole and you hit it and you knock the olives off of the branches. But like other trees, not all the olives get ripe at once. When I was in Panama, the guy showed me a wild olive tree. He said they produce for months. But as a landowner, you go when they're the ripest and you have the right from God, the true owner of the olive tree, that you harvest it once and then you leave it. 
And as the other ripe olives ripen, the poor, the gleaners, the travelers can gather the olives off of the tree. And that would be on probably for a month or so, or maybe more. Maximum profit was not made from that tree. But those in need could use the oil perhaps to sell it, use it for their own use, for their own lamps. Again, not the maximum production. The fatherless, the widows. Another financial loss. The grapes, the same thing. I used to grow grapes, and every time I grew them, the goats would eat them and kill them, but I knew when they did ripen, they don't all ripen at once. So the landowner, the farmer, could go through the field or the vineyard once and pick the grapes at the peak of ripeness. But again, those grapes would keep producing. For the widow, the sojourner, the fatherless. Again, all these are cash crops. God is commanding the owner to forego some of the profit of his business, of his work, for those who are in need. We must always consider the lives of those who are less fortunate than us. And I'm saying the truly less fortunate. We live in an abused system. But there are legitimate people in need. And that's where we must use discernment. You know, in Job 24, he gives us an idea of a system that has gone awry, corrupted. He says, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And he's saying, why isn't God coming down and judging these people? Why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless and take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. Poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the fields and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night without clothing. 
and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast. They take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked without clothing, hungry, and carry the sheaves among the olive rows of the wicked. They make oil. They tread the wine press, but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan. And the soul of the life of the wounded cries for help. This is a society that has gone awry. Instead of taking care of the poor, they are abusing the poor. Causing the poor to work for them, tread the wine press, yet they suffer thirst. They're not rewarded for their daily toil. Completely against God's word, And what you have here is wicked people, wicked men, trying to maximize their profits no matter what. We see much of that in our lives today. We've seen it in the past. And there's dire consequences on a society and on a country. When you look at the country of Haiti, it's on an island with the Dominican Republic. The French exploited it. They brought in slaves, stripped the lumber without any care about erosion, planted bananas, sugarcane, other cash crops, monocultured it time and time again, abusing the poor, making them slaves, taking the profits, and they left the land desolate. It is the poorest country in the world, mostly because the soil has been depleted and eroded, it was because of the abuse of the French and the slave market. It was called the gem of the Caribbean for the food production and the produce that came from it. And now it's pretty much desolate. If you look at a picture of the island, between the border of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, you can see a complete difference. One looks like a moon surface. The other one is lush and green and farm fields. When you go against God's law, if we go against God's law, it's not just our generation that suffers. It's passed on to other generations. It's not all about us and what we get and have. 
It's about what we leave for the next generations. And the fertility of the land, the productivity of the land must be considered in all that we do. We cannot live without food. And Job, in his defense, he says, I have rejected the cause, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? He's saying, oh, God will judge me he doesn't care about the poor and the widows and the homeless. And Job says, Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And that is where it starts. You know, we think we're so smart that we're so lucky, we have a business, we have money and that. It's all because God has granted it to us. God who made us, He made the poor as well. Did not He who made me in the womb make Him? We must care. We must care for those I live on the margin. And he goes on, if I have withheld anything that the poor desire or have caused my eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten. He goes on and on in his defense of how he did take care of the widows, the fatherless, the sojourners. He clothed them. He fed them. Job was a wealthy man. There is no sin in wealth. The sin comes in greed and the breaking of God's law where you do not care about those who are in need even though you are blessed so much. Wealth may lead to sin, but wealth in itself is not sin. So again, how do we remain faithful to God and productive for mankind? Will we find that perfect balance? After the fall, I believe that perfection is not attainable anymore. We're not only fighting our own sin, but now all of creation is groaning and broken. It's damaged. It's damaged goods. In Romans 8, it tells us, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealing to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage 
to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For you know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of creation is groaning just like we groan for the redemption of our bodies, for that perfection of our bodies, the perfection of this good earth has been corrupted. So we will not be able to do everything right every time. There will be a trade-off. We will get things wrong. Because not only we are corrupted, the earth is corrupted. And that is why we must always pray for discernment and wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. So thus far we know God created. It all starts there. It's His. He owns it. We're renters. We're the stewards. We're to be good renters. We're to leave the place perfectly clean and spotless and repainted so the renters who come in after us can improve it even more. In all that we do, we must consider those who are less fortunate among us. It's our duty. It's not optional. But also, there will always be a trade-off. Even our best intentions may go awry. Things may not work out. Many times, it will be because of man's ignorance. They strive to improve and they think they are improving, but in the long run they see that out of their ignorance, the effects in the long term harm the earth. Norman Borlaug, considered the father of the Green Revolution, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in agriculture. After World War II, there was a real food shortage. All the countries damaged from the war, the loss of so many men and lives. There was a real food shortage. This guy stepped up with other agricultural scientists They started using hybrids, synthetic fertilizers, and monoculture practices, which means the same crop year after year. One of the places that they started this was in Pingjun, India. It's one of the states or provinces in India. It's about, when I looked on the map on it, it looks like it might be a hundred different states. They're that small. Maybe 50 or 100. Not a very big region when you look at all of India. But they started it there. 
And after a few years, they considered him a national hero in agriculture. India, with its vast population, by 1997 was exporting grain because of this one province. The yields in the production were overwhelming. They called it the breadbasket of India. But by 2009, it was completely collapsed. The growing of the same crop, the hybrid wheat, the fertilizer, the insecticides, they had to continually increase the fertilization. The soil was never left to revitalize itself. Because of the same crop, the pest became resistant to the insecticides, so they had to use more and more. The more they used, the more the cancer rate went up. And even the more chemical fertilizers they used, the production went down. And now it's a region, an area, a province where you can't hardly grow a thing. It's void of nutrients. Did this Norman know the long-term effect would completely deplete this region? I don't know. It's halfway around the world. Like a lot of things, we can read what we can read. But a lot of times people have axes to grind and, you know, and we're looking for them so far away we can't see the sparks fly. But we do know that food cannot be produced there anymore and he's not really considered much of a hero. Again, it went against what God commanded, maximum yields, maximum profits and not regarding the long-term effects on the land. Best scenario, this was out of ignorance. However, in the South, they did that with cotton, so these guys should have known. What's the solution? The solution for the South was that God brought, raised up a Christian man, George Washington Carver. He revitalized the soil through his teachings for the South. You should teach your children that. Read about him. Strive to be like a man like him who overcame adversity after adversity. Think about it. At that time, a black man instructing white men how to grow their crops. Yet he was a genius. We must learn from history, the mistakes of others, to avoid doing them, but also we must strive for a more affordable commodity, and that is what this guy was doing. 
because maximum production from land with the least amount of harming it is something that helps the poor and those living on the margin nowadays. They can afford the food. You know, we live in an era of expansion that we have most of our lives. Argentina beef is supposed to be some of the best beef in the world. There's a type of pig from Spain, I forget what it's called. It's supposed to be the best pork in the world. But you look at the stuff you buy in the grocery stores, you know, it's from Chile, Ecuador. It's from all over the world. We've been blessed. But because we have a, a global economy now, will it always be? We see trouble in the world. We may get pulled into a, a war with Russia. Now, did the citizens of the United States before World War II think they were going to have victory gardens the next year? Yet they did, and they raised 40% of the food by the time the war was coming to an end. Imagine that. 40% of the fruits and vegetables consumed in this nation grown in the backyards of people. You know, we need to teach our children that God demands us to take dominion in all areas of life. And because this food comes from all over the world, you know, there may be places where they use child labor. I don't know. It may be filthy rich businessmen exploiting people. Could be. I don't have time to look it all up. So what do we do? What does we do as the people of God? I think we teach our children that we should take dominion in all areas of life. Raise up George Washington Carvers. Raise up men like Isaac Newton who understand They're searching out the treasures that God has put in this earth. But we can't always sit by and say just because something is, it's always going to be. Life is changing. It always is. I know what we can do. We can can do things locally. You can buy more locally. Plenty of farmers' markets. We know where that's coming from. By me, there's so many Amish places. Or we can raise some ourselves and share with our neighbors. Skip the middleman. Go directly to the widow, to those in need.
I think it would be in our best diligence to teach our children how to grow things. At least have the basic knowledge, the necessity of life. Food, I would think, is a necessity. You know, we have food banks. I know some people abuse them. I think they do a pretty good job in what farm, but our hearts, I see people donating produce at Goodwill, the other thrift stores, the ReStore. You know, God tells us that he who doesn't work should work, that he, could sh- that he can share with others. And that has to be the intention of our heart. You know, we must take care of those on the margin, the legitimate ones on the margin. And we must believe in the promises of God. That he has equipped his saints to fulfill these tasks. And we must pass that on to our children and our children's children. That they step into these fields that have been neglected. And carry God's principles into those fields. We see our world changing. There's no doubt about that. It is contracting. We see sin abounding, sins that we never even talked about being more brought to light. So we should be selective where we buy stuff and who we donate or pay our money to. I will not drink a Anheuser's or Bush product ever again, nor will I ever go to Target. I told my wife, my kids, they never will. Some things they cross the line. So unbiblical and ungodly. And I'm going to tell you another big concern I have. These two volcanoes that erupted. The Tonga volcano, I mentioned that. In 2020, and this one in Russia. Both huge, both underwater, sending water vapor into the stratosphere. Historically, when you read about that, there is food shortage worldwide and starvation. And from what I read, that may be coming again. Same scenario, those huge volcanoes. Usually it was one, we had two. Is that God's judgment on the earth? And this is strictly my opinion, because again, when you're reading a lot of this stuff, you're looking at it from left field. Do they have an axe to grind? I think we should be like the ant, be prepared for everything. And knowledge is what we need the most. The knowledge of how to produce with minimal effects on this earth, maximum efforts to take care of the poor and the needy, and still be profitable for ourselves.
God tells us he wants us to have life and life abundantly. It's by following his principles and his laws and his guidelines. Let us pray. Lord and our God, as we come before you with this, it's a requirement. We should love your earth. Not worship it, but love it. Because you love it. You said it was good, very good. You placed us here to tend it, and you sent your Holy Spirit to give us the ability to get the knowledge to do that. So I just pray that we encourage our children, our children's children, and ourselves to take on the burden of what would you have me do, Lord, to advance your kingdom, to seek out the treasures found in this earth, and to harvest them with the minimal amount of damage. And after all that, make sure I'm caring for those in need, those who have less than me, who are legitimately in need. Teach us to be such a people, Lord. Teach us to love you by loving our neighbor and loving your very good earth. It's our duty. Amen.